Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Amy Harris to tell us all about her fascinating book published by Oxford University Press in 2023 titled Being Single in Georgian England, Families, Households and the Unmarried. This book pretty much does what it says on the tin, which is fascinating. What did family life look like? How was it experienced when we view it from the perspective of people who were not married, members of the family who did not have children? Um, This is something that is kind of often on the sidelines of a lot of history and a lot of popular history of this time period. But this book puts these people front and center, and it is absolutely fascinating. So Amy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the book, though, would you mind introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. So I'm a historian of the 18th century. I've written before on family relationships. I find them fascinating. When I was in graduate school, I sort of got the vibe that families were a vehicle to discuss more important things, like shifts in socioeconomic patterns or political machinations. And so I've always been fascinated by studying family on its own terms. I think, of course, it can tell us about other things, but there was there was an assumption in the 90s, it felt like that it had to tell us something more important than just family. And there's been a big shift in scholarship on the family, I would say, since then, where internal family workings um, are there own interesting topic. So that suits me just fine. Um, And I've always been interested in sibling relations. I have eight siblings myself. I'm the youngest. Um, And how we work things out and our own internal dynamics have always been interesting to me. So I wanted to know about that in the past. And then because rates of people who never marry are quite high in the early modern era, it got me thinking, well, what does family look like from that perspective. And especially I like thinking about families as things that change over time. And a a lot of times we speak of them in kind of static terms. 
um, and a, a lot of more recent literature <clears throat> on the period and on households and, and families has really pointed out how more dynamic they are and how they change over time. So I wanted to explore that with a case study and see what came of it. That makes sense. Um, thank you for giving us that background. Um, obviously, you mentioned the case study. Would you please introduce us to the family that you focus on and help us understand to what extent they're an exceptional case versus a representative one? So I don't think you can make a case for the Sharps being representative. <laughs> uh, they are exceptional. So this is um, a, a lot of people would know about the Sharps via uh, Granville Sharp, the youngest brother, who was kind of the grandfather of anti-slavery movement in Britain. Uh, he and his brothers were early advocates for the ending of uh, slave trade. Um, and so he's been written about a lot and people know about the family via that. They were highly musical. Uh, Johann Zoffany, the most famous portrait artist of the day, painted their family portrait and it hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. And so that gets discussed from art history their grandfather was the Archbishop of York and was an inner circle counselor to Queen Anne. So they're not um, run of the mill. Um, they're a little over the top, I'm thinking, sometimes for some people. They all play musical instruments. They're always witty. They always run a pun as far as it will go. They all know Latin and French. Um, they all work incredibly hard to make sure that everything is always good between them and funny. Uh, they know how to have a really good time. They have the resources to do that. And some of that's social capital from their family's ecclesiastical positions. They don't have an estate, um, but they end up being quite lucky in getting prosperous livings uh, for the those who were clergy or the two who went into skilled trades, inheriting the business just as their master retires and and prospering because of that. Uh, they were also very good with money, but yeah, then they luck out. Then they also inherit the bits and pieces of, a, of money and property from extended family over time. So, and then they keep, they keep records. They know that at some point they realize, Hey, we're really cool. We're really exceptional. Uh, so they, they keep a record and they, they organize it and perpetuate it. So, I don't see them as representative of an every family in the 18th century, but I see them as representative of what was possible in the 18th century for family relationships. I, I can't think of a family who pulled it off better. Um, completely in the 18th century context of that word, there's still all sorts of gender and age hierarchies and understandings of race and class that are very 18th century. But, <clears throat> but in, in general, they, um, they're at the very limits of what was possible for family life, for social life. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I don't see them as helping me understand every family so much as highlighting what is going on in families where you have married and unmarried adults working things out. And then is it possible to see those echoed in other families? Maybe not to the, ext the extent it is for the Sharps, um, but that there's echoes. And I know from my own research, there are echoes and people lower down the social social scale or with fewer records that survive. Um, uh, but yeah, so I should also probably say just sort of in general, these are siblings born in the 1720s and 30s uh, in Durham and Northumberland. Their dad is the Archdeacon of Northumberland and has a ecclesiastical position at Durham Cathedral. 
So they grow up mostly in the north, but the sons are all moved south for either the two oldest sons go to Cambridge for and become clergy, and the younger sons go to London for very prosperous apprenticeships. And this, of course, all happens when they're in their mid-teens. Um, the parents die in 57 and 58, uh, when the youngest is not quite 20, and the oldest would be... 35-ish. Um, and so the oldest, John, becomes Archdeacon of Northumberland himself after his dad's death. And so he stays up north. Thomas, the next son, who's clergy as well and has livings in London and eventually up north, he kind of bounces between. But eventually all the other uh, siblings settle in London or southern England and then one sister goes back and forth between Durham and the South. So they're just kind of an anchor in Northumberland and Durham and an anchor in London and later on an anchor in Northamptonshire. And they, they circulate between those homes for the rest of their lives. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I mean, they're quite obviously a fascinating family. And, mm-hmm. a, and from a historical perspective, the fact that we have all these great records is fantastic. I'd love to pick up on a point that you've mentioned, um, the hierarchies, right? A, a lot of what we see in this time period in the society is very hierarchical, especially if we're thinking about ecclesiastical positions. Um, that's very much the case. And yet you talk about in the book that while the siblings were definitely born in a world that was very hierarchical, quote, the family culture they inherited had a more nuanced approach to child rearing. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so this surprised me a bit. And I had a couple of people who do church history read the chapter about their grandparents. And they disagreed with how I was classifying um, the particularly the grandfathers. So they're, like I said, the Sharp grandfather is the Archbishop of York, and their maternal grandfather, George Wheeler, um, is a clergyman, has a parish, and also other various appointments, um, and is wealthy. Um, and I thought, well, I, I don't want to engage in a church history fight about high church and low church and uh, connections to uh, the court. That's not what the story's about. So I went back and looked at those things, and I thought, oh, um, their internal dynamics as a family look far more flexible and kind of relaxed than what we would know about George Wheeler or John Sharp in their public personas. And there's glimpses of it in the way people remembered the archbishop. But what I'm really drawing on is, um, so their great, their maternal grandfather, George Wheeler writes a, um, a sort of, short memoir biography near the end of his life and the way he describes his childhood now. So he's born, um, he's born in the 1760s, or I mean, sorry, the 1660s and it, loyalist, one parent's loyalist and one parent is parliamentarian. And, and so he spends some time on the continent as well. But, um, the way he describes his parents is he says, Oh, they were, they were, too indulgent with me. They let me kind of do whatever I wanted, but I loved them kind of, you know, it was great to have these indulgent parents, which is not how I think of people raising children in uh, pre-restoration England um, or even post-restoration when you have a Puritan parent. Um, And then the sibling's father this is going to be a problem for our conversation because everybody has the same name, but sibling's father named Thomas, he writes to his brother 
when they're in their, well, Thomas is quite a bit younger than his brother, but he's in his twenties and he's taken a break from school at Cambridge and has come up to visit his family uh, in um, York where his dad's, um, where his parents live because his dad's the archbishop. And he writes his brother after leaving there and says, you know, this always happens to me when I go home, I get fat and lazy. Basically I hang out, I eat too much. I just relax. I don't do anything, you know, productive. It's just so fun and relaxing to be at home. Well, I I just don't think the public persona of the Archbishop of York (laughs) uh, quite matches that. So I think that both the Wheelers, so their mom and the Sharps, their dad, kind of came out with families being more open and flexible than we anticipate for 17th century families, particularly in their ecclesiastical position and their social status. Um, There's not a ton of evidence. I just listed the pieces of evidence I have for that. Um, But I think that explains better why the household the siblings grew up in definitely has a lot more freedom um, and flexibility and kind of gentle affection from their parents, which is sort of a thing that's happening in the 18th century. But this is this is coming before Locke, right? <laughs> this, this is, um, and there's elements of it in other families and different kinds of groups in the U.S. or in colonial North America and in in Britain. But um, I think the siblings were lucky or fortunate, however you want to put that, that their parents both seem to have come from families that had a little more breathing space for for children to be relaxed, to have recreation, to um, be maybe a little more informal with their parents. And I think Judith and Thomas, so that's the parents, I think they took it to a further degree. There's quite a bit of informality in some of the things, some of the way Thomas writes his children. Unfortunately, we don't have any letters from Judith to know how she was writing her children. Um, But then the children's later recollections, and of course, this is rose-colored glasses 40 years later kind of thing, but the way they remembered their parents was as affectionate and kind and a couple of them even pointed out that their dad was especially good with young people, could really connect with them. So, so is that the best, strongest, deepest evidence I have for every for anything? No, but I think there's suggestive clues there that they that their internal family kind of interactions at private times was more relaxed than perhaps prescriptive literature or perhaps the public speaking. Um, from high church officials, um, I don't mean, sorry, from church that are high, church officials who are high ranking would suggest. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think provides really helpful context for what you discuss in the book that the siblings really, uh, I mean, there were a lot of them, but despite any age gaps, had a collective identity, right? Had a kind of lot um, going for them as a group. And given kind of the more relaxed environment, that obviously suggests kind of some room for that to be created. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of what that identity looked like, um, how they sort of interacted in their childhood? Sure. So there, we should sort of talk about birth order just a bit. So there even there were 14 of them and, and eight survive to adulthood. Um, there's a, 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 a space there where their mom has, um, she doesn't go more than 10 months without having a baby or burying a baby. So we lost several infants and then they clearly were using wet nurses 
Um, and so she has, she's sort of pregnant, um, having a baby or mourning a baby kind of constantly for a lot of years in there. So there's some gaps that develop because of high infant mortality where you get John and Thomas at the upper end of the family. They're two years apart, almost in the day christened on the same day, two years apart. Then there's just a little bit of a gap and you get William and James. There was another brother, Charles in there who dies as a teenager, um, on the way to, um, to work in the East India company and dies in Jakarta. Um, and then there's a little bit of a gap and you get the, um, four youngest siblings, which are the three sisters and, and Granville, the youngest brother. So there's a little bit of all the sisters are at the younger end of the birth order, which perpetuates sort of gender hierarchies and age hierarchies quite nicely for the family. Whereas if you had an older sister, maybe it works out a little different or if one of the older girls had survived. Um, so they are close, but because the boys are at that upper end of the family and they go off to schooling, some of them to residential schooling at, well, I think John was 11, the oldest brother, which is typical for the era, right? Um they could have, there would have been natural and it happened in a lot of family that there would have been more emotional distance from the oldest to the youngest, where the boys are the older ones going off to apprenticeships or to Cambridge or to residential school and the girls are kept at home and they're also at the younger end of the birth order. But the parents encourage, perpetuate, it's, there's not a lot of evidence from their childhood direct, but from what the ch children remember and the little bits and pieces that do survive, um, that they're encouraged to keep those relationships going across distance. And this is a family that has the resources to do that, to let children, you know, burn through a lot of paper and ink, learning how to write and corresponding with each other and with their cousins. Um, so they, they have private tutors when they're at home, then they go to high end residential schooling, um, Granville's brought back home. I, I wonder if he just didn't adapt or if they didn't have money. It's not clear to me why he came back home and did, you know, was basically tutored at home after some schooling. And then, you know, at 14, 15, went to London on an apprenticeship. But um, the girls were definitely tutored at home. They all were tutored in French and at least some Latin. Uh, the boys, of course, would have learned more Latin through formal schooling. I think their mother painted. It seems like their mother painted. She definitely composed or compiled at least folk songs. So they learned to play instruments, sing, dance, compose, um, read broadly, all of them, boys and girls. Um, and then of course, in a couple foreign languages. And Granville says that he has memories of taking Shakespeare out into the apple orchard, I think it was apple orchard and sitting in the trees and reading uh, from books, you know, sort of on his own. And now that could have just been his memory of doing it once, but if that's any glimpse at all, it sounds like there may have been a fair amount of time, especially at least for the boys to do some unstructured play beyond being five or six years old. Uh, their dad built a folly a, that he used as an astronomical tower and it's partly built so we can employ lo local unemployed masons and folks, but then the kids get to go there all the time and he takes them there. So there's a, there's a kind of learning through play or learning through free time that I think they enjoy. They, they play concerts together. They um, give each other nicknames that their dad continues to use well into their adulthood. So they have 
um, an internal culture developing while they're growing up um, that their parents allow or facilitate through the resources it takes and also through some free time for that to happen. I'm not sure if the girls had as much flexibility or kind of unstructured, unsupervised time as the boys. I'm assuming when they were pretty young, they did. Um, as they got into their teen years, there may have been a little more structure, but they're still very close to their brothers because when their brothers go down to London, some of the girls will travel with their parents to take them down. And the brothers, this is a little bit later when one of the, when William finishes his apprenticeship in London. And so he's, you know, 21, 22, sets up his own household and he says to his dad, hey, let's let Elizabeth, his sister, that's just a couple years younger than he is, come down and be housekeeper, right? Come down and manage the household, which would be a sort of female equivalent in his world of someone coming to an, an additional apprenticeship in London. And the parents don't sign off on that. But that tells me that Elizabeth and William had childhood interactions. That they, they're, So it couldn't have been super gender segregated or they wouldn't have had that to draw on. And it wouldn't have been so clear to the brothers about, hey, we got to have them come down. We got to have them come down and join us here. If they hadn't had that kind of interaction as children. So, yeah, I, I mean, I wish we had more evidence <laughs> from their childhood directly from the period um, to, to really dig into that. But yeah, I think they had a lot of, um, they had a lot of, they, they clearly had structure in their learning and definitely religious practice. So, church worship, church music, sacred music, sacred concerts, prayer, um, all very important to daily life for them, as well as this sort of play and um, interaction with each other, despite age and gender differences. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I think as we kind of continue and go into their later lives, it'll I mean, I, I found that kind of even more um, evidence, really, that they must have had kind of strong interactions as children, given kind of what how they interact as they go through their adulthood. Um, so kind of speaking of the beginning of that process, if we move into the 1750s, um, just based on kind of age, we might expect that this is when sort of most, if not all of the siblings marry. Why then do so few marry during this time? And what do you think this can tell us and help us understand about the role of siblings, not just parents, in making marital decisions? Yeah, so um, I think in many ways, siblings are more important than mar- than parents for a lot of families. And I'm not the only one to see that pattern. Because English folks, even in this class where they marry a little younger than people in say like a trades class or something, um, tradesman's class, um, even though they marry a little bit younger than those others, they're still marrying later compared to women on the continent. And so a lot of people, by the time they're 30, they've lost at least one parent. And if you're not married till you're 22, three, four, five, and you only have one parent living, parents just by the demographic reality as much power as they have, especially if it properties involved, um, don't have exclusive power to influence their children's marital choices. Siblings are really important. Even in families that are very dysfunctional, you'll see sibling relationships having an an effect on marital choices, whether that's positive or negative. Um, But for the Sharps, where they have a highly functional sibling relationship, and I think 
1750, exactly like you said, you would expect between 1750 and about 1765 that they would marry, most of them, if not all of them. Um, and their parents die in 1757 and 58. So that that plays a role that there's not a parent, there's no, there's no parents there um, sort of in the middle of that era. So it, it even highlights more their sibling connections. But I, th- I think what I see from the evidence is just how much fun they had as siblings. <laughs> and there's a fair amount of literature that points out women in kind of a prosperous socioeconomic level are less inclined to marry um, because they don't need financial support. So they'll marry if the person is someone they want to marry, but they have fewer external pressures to marry just as a financial necessity. So that's not as surprising. Um, They also, they're very well off socially, but not necessarily financially when they're in their, in the early 1750s. Um, Elizabeth, the sister says later in life that she thinks their dad was too generous with his resources to the poor and the strangers and didn't leave them enough. That's the only, just a one line comment. Uh, But the sisters don't inherit, you know, they're not inheriting thousands and thousands of pounds. So they're not, they're attractive on the marriage market socially, but not financially in the early 1750s. The brothers, um, William and James, who did apprenticeships in London, become more financially prosperous and the sisters as well as, as they invest money and as in they inherit um, from extended family. But so there's, there's very little, I think of that external pressure though, because the sisters, as long as their dad's alive, they have a place to live. Rothbury, Northumberland is one of the most prosperous livings in the church. So, and plus his house in Durham and then they have a house for a while in Southwell and, and uh, I think in Nottingham. Um, so they're okay without marriage. They're going to be okay. They have enough to live on. They can combine their households, which lots of single sisters do. So I think there's a kind of general patterns you would expect in the society. But then I think I want to circle back to what I said. They just have so much fun. (laughs) They're really close. Their parents have encouraged the closeness. They have maintained that closeness across distance and age and they don't want to mess it up. So in 1750, the dad brings Granville down to, to London to start his apprenticeship, and William and James already live there. William is just finishing his apprenticeship and starting his own household uh, he's a, uh, to a surgeon. And James is near the end of his to an ironmonger, um, and uh, Granville's apprentice to a draper. Um, and then it's, it's also 1749-1750, the oldest brother, John, gets his first ecclesiastical appointment, um, up in, in, in Northumberland at Hartburn. And Thomas is just finished has finished at Cambridge and has his first appointment somewhere in there as well in the London parish. So they're all kind of being launched pretty well. The girls are all still at home and they are, um, I mean, the youngest is only 12. So, um, they're in their mid to late teens, um, up in, up in uh, Northumberland. Um, but he purposely picks an apprenticeship for Granville. That's good socially that's appropriate it's a quaker family so it didn't matter that they weren't members of the established church but he picks a spot where granville's in a equidistant triangle with his two older brothers and james comes over and brings him an apron for work um and he's so excited and william's going to have him for dinner 
And so their dad is just thrilled that he set the boys up um, close together to support each other. Well, what happens is uh, as William moves into a, out of the apprenticeship and then James does is they immediately and how they did this, there's no record for this. So I don't know the finances, but they bought a boat and every Friday night in the summer, they would sail up and down the Thames and they'd bring all their instruments and they'd invite their buddies. And, and they, a few years later, they keep a tally of the, the, or not a few years later, a few weeks into this, they start keeping a tally of their expenses. I don't know where their money comes to cover it, but it'll be, you know, good food, um, if they had to pay for an extra musician, one time they had to pay for a broken window and several shillings of wine. So I don't know if those two things are related, but they, these are guys in their early twenties and they don't start socializing in the London social scene. They make up their own social scene. They start sailing the river. And, um, and then as people age, they get incorporated in that. So Granville gets incorporated in that. And if the sisters visits, they get incorporated. And when their parents die, the sisters all move to London and move in with their brothers. And so they, they're all incorporated in this. So you have all these single siblings in their twenties, really funny, really clever, well-read, well-educated, very musically talented, throwing their own parties every Friday night on a boat. And then in the winter, they would do it at William's house. Um, and he even bought a fancy organ. So they, and then Sundays they would have sacred concerts. And, um, so there was secular and sacred, sacred moments in their concert schedule. And of course they would go to public entertainments like the theater or musical. Um, but I can't imagine being at some social gathering of the kind of up and coming, uh, merit, you know, people on the marriage market group at a concert say, and in walks six or seven sharps, <laughs> all decked out, all, you know, completely happy in their relationships with each other, having the time of their lives. <laughs> Who has the guts to sort of insert themselves into that circle? And they don't seem particularly bothered by marriage questions. They, they'll throw out a joke or two. They exchange these letters called the common letters where the all the siblings write in the letters as they go back and forth between the North and the South. And they don't, they don't, there's a joke or two about not being married, but not much. They don't seem all that exercised about, about that. And so, so I think one internal to them is their sibling relationships in their early twenties and mid twenties did not inspire thinking about uh, a spouse or trying to acquire one, except for John he marries. He's he's clergy, has his own house. He lives far away from the siblings in London. And he marries a first cousin that they've all known their whole lives and hung out with each other their whole life. So he basically chose a sibling once removed to marry. Uh, so that didn't cause any ripples and they live further away. And then it's a decade before anybody gets married. And their parents are gone four and five years before Elizabeth, the next one to get married. And she marries a first cousin once removed. Judith was very close to marrying a brother of that first cousin once removed, and then he died of smallpox. So that's why she didn't marry at that stage. So you have two married siblings. Um, John up north uh, gets married in 52. They don't have any children for a long time. Elizabeth gets married in 62 in London. And the same year, John and Mary have a daughter. So it's 
early 1760s. The youngest sibling is 24. Uh, the brothers are becoming more prosperous and moving into their 30s. Um, you only have one niece. It, it sort of seems like, wouldn't this be the time the rest of them would start getting married? Uh, but it's two years more um, or two or three years more before they start getting married. And James says, so James sort of middle brother, Elizabeth had been his housekeeper and in the 18th century sense of that word, that was uh, more of an acknowledged occupational category. Um, she gets married in 62. And I think this sort of inspires him and he's in his thirties, right? Huh? Maybe I should, look at my own domestic situation <laughs> um, and see what I want to do. Because by marrying Elizabeth becomes a, um, her husband's going to be heir to uh, Wiccan Park out in Northamptonshire. That's, so she's going to go be mistress out in Northants. And um, so he's, and the sisters, Francis, goes to live largely with Elizabeth. So James, I think, reconsiders. And he has this woman he's really interested in. She's at least a decade younger than he is. And she goes to writing school at the same place Sister Frances goes to writing school. And so James every day can, or every week, comes up with some excuse why he has to accompany his sister to the writing school just so he can flirt with Catherine, trying to convince him, convince her to marry him uh, or to be interested in him. And then he writes a letter to the John up north and says, you know, found this girl I like kind of thing, you know. Um, and he says, but I won't marry her if she, if marrying her would disrupt what we enjoy as brothers and sisters. So I thought that was going on. And when I read that letter, I thought, oh, yeah, they've made a calculation as a group. They know by this point, they're lucky. They know that what they have is exceptional. Uh, John once remarked that they are remarkable for their unanimity and they work very hard to maintain that unanimity or at least the perception of that unanimity. Um, and so they know, they know that's fortunate. They're aware of how fragile it is. They can see some of their cousins marry disastrously, um, you know, domestic violence and divorce kind of disaster. Um, and I, they make a calculation. I don't think it's just James. I think collectively they make a calculation that if one of us marries, it has to be something the rest of us, it has to be somebody who can join in what we're doing. And the siblings all tell James, they're like, well, I'm not so worried about her, um, her disrupting what we have, but shouldn't you let her hang out with us a bit more so you can, she can determine whether she's ready to take us on. <laughs> I think they understood they were a lot. And, uh, and James is intended, named Catherine, doesn't seem to be musical. So I think they're aware, is she ready to sort of be hostess to these events? She doesn't, she's not going to participate in like the siblings will. Is she ready to not just marry James, but marry all of his social and emotional patterns with all those siblings? Um, and apparently she is because they get married a few months later and she's all in, she's all in the rest of their lives. And then that triggers William thinking about William's just a year older than James or a year or so older than James. And he starts thinking about marriage and he gets married the following year to also to a Catherine, just to be confusing. Um, he marries James's, um, James's wife's 
sister-in-law. <laughs> so James and William's wives have siblings who are also married to each other. So even though that's an exogamous marriage, that James and William are not marrying relatives, they marry women who are connected through marriage to, to each other, um, which tightens those bonds. And they, they all know each other from coming to concerts and associating in these, in these London parishes and um, trade networks and so forth, or uh, professional networks. Right. So even if they're not really so after that, blood, I think it's, it's sort of a very tight social connection. Yes. Yes. And I, so I think after that, the bar to marry in there is super high after that point. And there's chances, there are opportunities for all of them later, but they never take them. No, that's, I mean, as you said, kind of, this looked like what was happening. And then you get the letter that pretty much says it flat out, um, which is really interesting. Uh, and I think kind of makes exactly that point, right? That there's clearly this um, calculation being made. Before I move on, um, I wonder if I can ask a bit of a follow-up to something you mentioned, um, the idea that they work really hard to maintain this unity. How do they do that? So um, I think one of them is in the silence in what survives. Um, there's, If there was ever anything written that expressed any deep conflict, I don't know if any such thing was ever produced, but if it was, it sure didn't get passed on. Um, so there, there's that. Uh, but the, where I see it the best is when Thomas, so he's the uh, second oldest brother, and he doesn't get married until 1770. So he's, there's no other, um, you know, William gets married in 65, doesn't look like anybody else is too excited to get married, but Thomas suddenly does in 1770. Um, and he's in his mid 40s. And no one seems to have a problem with her. But this is the only surviving record of any conflict between the siblings. And the conflict is the siblings down south. So I need to back up a bit um, to just underscore how exceptional they are. Their dad had been trustee for Bamborough Castle and uh, Lord Crewe's charitable estate up there. And their brother, John, inherits that. And he's he basically runs what is probably the best run charity of Northern England in the latter half of the 18th century um, from his own drive and ambition. Um, so he lives there in the castle during the summer with his wife and their daughter. And then sometimes in Durham and the daughter also travels with her aunt Judith a lot and then their house in Hartburn. So they sort of bounce around those three houses in Northumberland and Durham. Well, Thomas is the rector of the Bamborough parish but there's no um, living quarters associated with that position. And he has other positions as well. So he lives in the castle with Mary and John. So John and Thomas have grown up in the nursery together, went to the same residential schools together, uh, you know, with a two-year gap. Uh, we're roommates, as, or flatmates, as we would put it now, at Cambridge. Um, and then as soon as John is... Uh, custodian over the castle and starts making renovation, Thomas lives with him there the bulk of the year. So the siblings down south are not worried about the woman Thomas has chosen to marry, who, of course, is named Catherine. Um, they're worried about the domestic relationships, the, the difficulty that may cause, because they have heard, and this letter doesn't survive, how this news traveled, I don't know, but that John won't let, quote, Thomas and his wife live in the castle. And they're all, the Southern siblings are a little ticked. They say to John, you have all these other places to live. He doesn't because there's no rectory or vicarage at Bamborough. 
you should let you should vacate the castle and let him and Catherine live there once they're married. Um, and John and Mary, what survives are John and Mary writing a letter to their siblings via Judith. Judith's kind of a sister that bounces between Durham and the South. And they're really hurt by this accusation. So what I mean by working really hard is the letter they write is so constrained and working so hard to express their hurt, but not be angry and cause further conflict with the rest of their siblings. There's this elaborate page and a half long, I think, analogy about small children sharing a hobby horse that John writes to try to explain how the two families can share a castle. Uh, Yeah, right. But just that kind of rhetorical device to separate himself from the direct attack on his siblings misunderstanding him, right? To use an analogy, to use a kind of narrative device to explain. And then he says things like, we have been happy together for 15 years. Don't you know I hold Thomas, Thomas's happiness in higher regard than my own? Don't you trust me to care more about Thomas than I care about my own comfort? And he says, we can't leave the castle. I'm the trustee. I cannot surrender it. There's a practical reason. But we will figure this out, right? We will. Can't you trust us to care about Thomas as much as you do? Um, and to me, that that sort of, I mean, they write two letters, these long letters. They're trying so hard to make sure that he's hurt, but he doesn't want to cause any riff with his siblings. And he's also the one that's, that's when he talks about we're remarkable for our unanimity. And James in his letter about his getting married, he says, you know, what we enjoy is exceptional and I will not hurt it in any way. Um, so they kind of remind each other in these little moments, remember, I'm going to do whatever it takes <laughs> to make this work. I'm a little hurt. You suggest I wouldn't, <laughs> but everything in that letter is John trying to soften the blow of his criticism. Um, that takes a lot of effort. And I, I think I'm guessing that in personal interaction that happens all the time. And that's why conflict and conflict resolution doesn't show up in the letters because it's done very carefully in person, James and William, when Granville, so in the 1770s, Granville quits his job at the ordinance office because he doesn't agree with the policy towards the American colonists, thinks they should be treated differently. And so he can't keep his, he goes kind of on furlough for a while thinking it's, it's a conflict of conscience to, to work for the military, right? The British military system when I don't agree with how they're employing their military power. Um, and, but he doesn't know what to do. He's like, this is my only income, my only reliable income, you know, a five pound inheritance isn't going to go very far from some distant cousin. And James and William write him and reassure him multiple times you can live with us. We don't care if you bring in any money. Your company is reward enough, right? <laughs> like <laughs> these constant reassurances. So that's, I think those are just little glimpses. They don't explicitly write it out constantly, but I think that sh- shows they're very careful with each other, a kind of top of mind uh, so that the conflict doesn't arise or that people don't misunderstand uh, motivations. Um, and, and then I think whatever does survive in the written record, I think got got excised by them or by their niece and didn't get perpetuate, didn't get um, preserved. Yeah, no, fascinating. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, 
One aspect I'd love to ask you about is kind of hinted at, I suppose, in that last answer, um, the idea that although perhaps the traditional conception, the traditional structure was that the husband or the father was the head of household and that's what it was to be a man. Um, Obviously, that's not the case in what we're talking about here, right? There's kind of multiple households with multiple siblings. There's not sort of just one adult couple. So what can we learn about the family in terms of thinking about what masculinity was, how this was enacted beyond the stereotype of sort of man equals head of household? Now, that's an interesting question um, because householding, I mean, marriage and householding are so important to masculinity. And I think one of the things the Sharps show us is there's other ways to get there that's about domestic and household, but isn't, like you said, married head of household man with dependent wife and children. And one of the reasons this develops for the Sharps is all of them set up households when they're single. None of them, um, other than I guess maybe you could say for Thomas, none of them have setting up household and getting married as the same moment in their lives. They're separate. And for most people, those are more closely connected. Uh, that setting up a, a new household is kind of part and parcel of getting married. And none of them do that. They set up their own households and then get married sometimes many years later, or they never set up a household, right? They, they just stay with their siblings. But as you said, it's not, it's not sort of male head of household, dependent wife, children, and then dependent sibling who lives with him. And I think sometimes in the literature, we assume co-resident siblings, particularly younger sibling, younger sisters or unmarried brothers are by definition dependent on that married brother householder. And I'm not convinced of that. And I'm not going to pretend that the Sharps are tell us about every family, but they can't be the only family where that's not true. They can't be the only family where the sibling relationship um, is older, is more horizontal. Even it does have some hierarchies in there, but it is more horizontal than the way marriage is perceived or conceived. Absolutely. And parenting, of course. Um, that maybe it's just not so straightforward that just because a younger brother um, an unmarried brother or a younger sister lives in a household with an older sibling that that older, especially if it's a married older sibling, that somehow that married older sibling becomes automatically the power of the par- parental figure and the sibling becomes the younger sibling or unmarried sibling becomes automatically uh, a dependent. Of course, there'd be a million factors about does that younger sibling have any resources of their own and so forth. But that would be pretty typical in a, in a well-off family and a gentry family. Those younger siblings would have some of their own inheritance, some of their own money usually, or lower down the social standing, they might have their own jobs and their own income. Uh, there, it would be unlikely that they would be completely financially dependent on a, a sibling as an adult or for their whole adulthood. And Granville isn't completely financially dependent on his brothers. He does inherit money from cousins and uncles and aunts and that kind of thing. And he invests. Um, and of course they all get a little bit of inheritance from their parents. So he does have some annuity money that comes in. He just wouldn't have enough to run his own household beyond some rooms. And he does rent rooms. He rents rooms for his own private study, separate from living in one of his siblings houses. Um, but Granville really shows how, I mean, he's in, he's invested in the running of the household. So this would be fascinating to figure out how many other 
households do you see brothers and sisters, uh, particularly brothers and brothers? Because we know a lot of sisters acted as housekeepers for brothers, and then they ran accounts. They were, you know, uh, on one hand, they're seen rhetorically as dependent, but because they're basically managing a household, uh, they're not in some ways. Um, but for brothers, you know, a younger unmarried brother living with a brother, the assumption would be, well, then he's just a hanger on or he's dependent or, or they resent him. And he's fully embedded in those households. He helps run accounts. He, he runs errands. He um, helps manage those households. Now, not at the level his sisters-in-law or his sister would, um, but it's not, it's, it's not a sort of cut and dry, like, oh, he's not a householder, so he's not participating. So I just think there might be clues that other families are doing similar things where men who might look like they're not masculine, quote unquote, enough in domestic things are doing more of that than we realize and are therefore shoring up their masculinity or seen as being just fine. Um, it helps that they come from this social class. I think it'd be different in a different social class. Uh, this is also an era, though, where men are more involved in what we what our anthropologists call kin keeping, right? And in, in doing sort of domestic things, married or single. So, um, I think householding is incredibly important for masculinity. But I think single men had avenues to doing a version of that that might surprise us, particularly if they had resources. Um, he would have been just fine if he just lived in rooms. But I think by being embedded in his siblings' household network uh, management and helping manage that, it it provided him some of those same avenues for socially acceptable masculinity. Um, it, in addition to his publishing and that sort of stuff, also burnishes his um, his stature. But even Thomas, I mean, Thomas is single till his mid forties, and he's living with his brother but he's a clergyman and he helps run his brother's household. And I don't get any sense of that not being good enough uh, as a man. Um, So I I can't answer for every other group, but it'd be interesting to see, kind of get a collection of brothers doing this kind of stuff and seeing are the sharps that exceptional or can you see a lot of uh, younger brothers or single men yeah, no, that would be having really that opportunity despite not being this sort of typical male married head of household. Right. It might give us, um, and I think what the Sharp family at least gives us is kind of multiple ideas of what it meant to be masculine rather than just the kind of one conception of it. Um, this idea of being embedded in households and kind of the family network more broadly. Um, I'd love to ask about, again, kind of something that maybe isn't sort of the angle we usually take. Uh, obviously, if most of the siblings are not married or kind of marry later. As you've already mentioned, there's not a lot of the next generation running around, right? There's not a lot of children. And we often kind of focus, I mean, to some extent, we've been focusing on the importance of parents, right? The importance of grandparents. But if there's not that many kids, there's still a whole bunch of adults. So what can we learn from this very close group of siblings about what it meant to be an aunt or an uncle? Um, and to what extent was this a different type of relationship to being a parent? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the things that really stood out to me when I started revisiting some of their letters after a few years. Um, this would have been a very different family if they did not have the fertility problems they have. Um 
I, I'm not sure some of these dynamics would have developed or been as visible if you had suddenly four, not suddenly, but over the 1760s, three, four, five families with two, three, four kids. It just would have shifted. The whole dynamic would have shifted just by nature. But between them all, they um, have they have severe fertility problems and lots of stillborns and miscarriages. Um, but they have four children that survive birth, one nephew and three nieces. And the nephew dies at um, five years old. So they have three nieces who are eight years apart each. So Jemima, born 1762, Catherine, born in 1770, and then Mary, born in uh, 78. To, and they're cousins. So there's no siblings in that next generation. There's just those three girls that are cousins with each other. Uh, so it really highlights, because you don't have a lot of competition, <laughs> those three girls, for their aunts and uncles having children as well. Or, you know, so if Jemima is born in 62, and it's not, it's eight, well, sorry, Jack's born. That's the nephew that dies. He's born in 65. So you have Jack and Jemima, but everybody else doesn't have kids. And then you have Catherine, who's born just before her brother Jack dies. So you just have these two girls uh, for another eight years. And being of the class thereof, of the social class they're a member of, there's uh, nurses and servants, and they those girls are shipped off to go live with their aunts when they're six weeks old sometimes. Their nurse goes with them while their mother recovers, and then their parents come later. So there's interaction with their aunts and uncles from birth. Um and long visits to their aunt Elizabeth and aunt Frances living out in Northamptonshire, long visits to Durham to visit Jemima lives up North and the other two live down South um, or Jemima traveling with her aunt Judith and coming down to Wiccan park and hanging out with Frances and Elizabeth and the, the other cousins, the other girls, the other nieces. So what stood out is and I'll admit, this is not in the book, but I will admit there might be just a little bit of projection because I'm very close to my nieces and nephews and I don't have any children. <laughs> so there might be just a little bit of me thinking about those relationships. But it was more going back and thinking about how Granville writes letters to his nieces, how Elizabeth writes letters, how the youngest niece, Mary, writes these this multi-page elegy <laughs> to Wiccan Park and her aunts uh, when one of the nieces is born, Catherine Talbot, who's a, a, a blue stocking um, and family friend. She writes this very feminist letter to this new baby and remarks on, you know, your wonderful aunts will teach you about this world. Doesn't say anything <laughs> about her parents. Um, so they, um, I, so it's, I got thinking about that and I got thinking, we often talk about single women or single men's roles as if they are surrogate, replacement, partial parents. Often that happens because the parents are gone, and so an aunt or an uncle steps into a parent role. But in the Sharps case, the parents are all alive. So this is just anting and uncling on its own. This isn't, oh, surrogate parenting. They don't need that. This isn't um, sort of, oh, well, they're childless, so we'll throw them the crumbs of being an aunt or an uncle. That's that's not what this is at all. This is its own relationship with its own dynamics. 
And so what I see is, of course, there's overlap between parenting and auntie and uncling, but there's this whole part of being an aunt and uncle and being a niece to your aunt and uncle that is not parent-child relations. It's more flexible because the aunt or uncle doesn't have the same responsibility to make sure that you're going to be a responsible adult <laughs> uh, that I've switched into second person here. Sorry, let's back up. That being an aunt and uncle in the 18th century didn't mean that they had to um, pre- prepare that child for adulthood. If the parents were still alive, they, they didn't have to make those decisions about schooling and discipline. And um, they're kind of sometimes like a parent, sometimes like an older sibling. So the nieces can talk to them, and interact with them in maybe a slightly less formal way. And what happens over time with these nieces is because they don't marry, the two older nieces don't marry um, in the 18th century, um, they kind of evolve into a younger sister role. Um, So Jemima's letters with Granville are very similar to the ones he exchanges with his siblings by the time she's an adult. it's sort of fascinating how they, 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 those girls become kind of like little sisters to these siblings at the end of the birth order who didn't really have a bunch of younger siblings. And when the girls are young, oh my goodness, the attention they get from their aunts and uncles. Uh, I, I put in the book that Thomas, who's single and has no children when Jemima's born, um, writes this, this letter to his brother and says, okay, so we're all down here and we're picking out the things we get to buy Jemima. They're, you know, their new little niece. And he said, I picked last. So I ended up having to be the one that buys the the shift for her. He's like, oh, that's lame, right? That's boring. I wanted to buy her something fun and exciting. This is a bunch of 20, 30 somethings living their life in London, squ- squabbling, but in a funny, gentle way over who gets to buy the best toy for their little niece who lives up north. Um, so they're, they funnel all of that attention to just these three little girls and then three young women, uh, Granville buys an ear trumpet for, um, for Jemima who has hearing loss. Um, I assume very young. It's, that's never explicitly discussed, but either right at birth or shortly thereafter, perhaps from an illness, uh, Judith is invested in the tutors they, they use to, uh, for Jemima's education. Um, she travels with Jemima in the portrait. Jemima and Judith are seated together. Jemima's not seated with her parents. Um, they spend long summers out at Wiccan and get to play games and music and puzzles and paint together as their Aunt Elizabeth oversees the household and lets them have a playroom. Basically uh, they, they get this sort of fun, freedom, flexible stuff from their aunts and uncles. And I think for the aunts and uncles, they they get a relationship that doesn't have the constraints of parenting or the responsibilities of parenting, but has all some of the emotional fulfillment. Not the same kind. I'm not going to pretend they're the same as parents, but get some of the emotional fulfillment and enjoyment of raising posterity. Hmm. And I even see echoes of it in the brothers who marry, the way they talk about their nieces. Um that there's a closeness there, but it's a particular closeness for the siblings who don't have children with their nieces. When um, Judith dies, this is 1809, Judith dies up in Durham and she'd been living with Jemima 
for many years. And Granville immediately races up to Durham to comfort Jemima and be with her and um, help settle the household. And that's, you know, Jemima's, um, how old would Jemima be in her early 40s? And her uncle's in his uh, 60s, um, late 60s, and he rushes to be with her because they have this lifetime connection. And and the way he interacts with her is um, based on that lifetime connection as an uncle and a niece, not as a surrogate parent, not as a um, distant relative. I'd love to um, kind of pick up on something you've just mentioned, right? The idea of ideas of posterity. Um, how did being single or marrying later um, or not having children, how do you think that that shaped uh, the perspectives of the siblings about lineage and legacy when, again, so much emphasis is often on kind of parent-to-child transmission? Yeah, this uh, this theme came very early when I was working on the Sharps um, because Elizabeth, well, Judith does the the drawing and the construction and Elizabeth and the niece, Catherine, uh, provide the information. They make this family lineage chart that is, I think it's four feet by eight feet backed cloth and it folds up into a sort of A4 size. But um, it's a, it's not, it was never completed, but it's an enormous work of handicraft and genealogical knowledge because it goes back Oh, goodness, I think it goes back six generations, comes forward three, and then goes out to all these cousins. So in the middle of it is this line of blue circles. It's everybody's in a circle and then lines drawing their connection to their parents and so forth. But all the children of any family group are in these colored circles. So one generation might be red. And then there's family crests um, where the parents' marriages are. So there's in the middle is this line of 14 blue circles. And that's the Sharp siblings. <clears throat> I've looked at a lot of 18th century family genealogies, and most of them written by men with property and children are very linear. One of my favorite, it's just so adorable. <laughs> this guy made a scroll that traced his families from, you know, French noblemen from 1066 forward to him in the late 1700s. And he cut and pastes um, little tiny family uh, coats of arms at each generation and then writes down and it's just father, son until it gets to him. And then it's suddenly he has siblings and children <laughs> um, that he puts on the list, but it's a scroll. It's a long linear account. It's about property. It's often about masculinity to one degree or another. Now, of course, women also keep these records. They're often tied up in property, but there are other examples of people thinking more laterally about genealogy or their lineage or their posterity. But for most people, it's going to come down to children. But for the Sharps, it can't be about children, not just because they only produce those three nieces, but those three nieces are not going to carry on the surname necessarily. Uh, by the time you get to the 1790s, Jemima's in her 30s. Um, Elizabeth once says about her, I don't think she ever inclined to marriage. Uh, Catherine would be approaching 30. Um, now, Mary's still quite young, so she might marry, but it's looking like even if one or two of those nieces get married, they're not going to have many grandchildren and there's not going to be a sharp among them. So I think being single and largely childless makes them think about lineage in very different ways. 
So they start thinking about values, objects, an inheritance of what it means to be sharp as more important than an embodiment in a child um, or a grandchild in this case. Um, So things like family heirlooms, things like this lineage chart where the sharps are embedded. They're not the end of a line, right? Or their nieces are not the end of a line. They're embedded in in a whole network. And I, I think I use the word latticework of relationships in time and space. Um, they think about their books and their music, where it would be preserved, um, because they know they don't have a family house to store all this stuff. So they start thinking about where should the portraits go? Where should the books go? Where should the music go that they will preserve our legacy? They start editing their dad's writings, their dad's auto, or their dad's biography of their grandfather. They, um, they make this trip in the 1780s where they go up north and they visit every place they've ever lived and every place they know their ancestors lived. Um, they start talking more or writing more. I don't know about the talking, but writing more of those stories, knowing more of the stories of their ancestors uh, and their cousins as well who don't have children. So I think it makes them think of legacy that is something that is more about that we would kind of recognize a little bit more about sort of family culture, family value, or, you know, sort of things, your family values and characteristics you want to perpetuate more than they think about a boy who would own property. <laughs> and I don't think they're the only family thinking this way. I just think it's so obvious with them, how differently they think about those sorts of things, how much they think of a legacy as sort of an intangible inheritance as well as memorabilia that will perpetuate those values and ideas into the future, even if there's not somebody with a sharp surname. Mm, No, really interesting. Um, And it was fascinating to read, uh, obviously, the kind of different ways that they thought about this and to hear you talk about it. Here, of course, um, it's worth reminding listeners as we come to the end of this that of course the book has loads of additional detail and stories so if you want to know about even more things sharp um please do pick up the book um but i think that does bring us to the end of the interview with just my final question amy this book is obviously available people can go read it which means it's off your desk is there anything you might be working on now or next even if it's not a book or on this family yeah so i've I always have 1400 projects going on in my head, but the one that's growing most out of this project is I'm, so I'm a, uh, I'm an accredited genealogist. I teach family history methodology and courses at the university. Um, and I'm always been interested in the history of genealogical practices. So you see that in that one chapter of the book, it's kind of become a mildly, sexy in the most academic way possible uh, topic in the last few years, the history of genealogy, particularly in Britain and U.S. There's been several books. Um, And so I want to move into that space a bit more because of William Dade, who's a a Yorkshire clergyman. In the 1770s, he wants, for himself and then for others, he tries to encourage other clergy to make the parish registers have more genealogical information, particularly the christening records. And he says explicitly, so that future people will be able to find their ancestors. I I don't know anybody else in the 18th century 
who's thinking that way, right? Even the Sharps are not thinking, everyone's thinking about their family, right? How they, you know, who their glorious descent and their glorious pros- posterity. But why is this man thinking about strangers wanting to know their ancestors from the 18th century? I got I got to figure that out. And he's, he's not very successful in convincing very many people because it takes more work. And then Shoot Barrington, who's the Bishop of Durham, around the same time, he starts requiring the clergy in the diocese of Durham to also record additional information. William Dade and his siblings never marry, have no children. Shoot Barrington marries, but has no child, has no biological children. And I'm like, is that, is that connected? <laughs> or do I just see that because I just wrote this book that makes me think it's connected? I don't know. But I want to look into 18th century genealogical practices. Often the English genealogical practices in the 18th century are held up as a foil to American ones, as if the British are only concerned with hierarchy and aristocratic connections. And that's the only reason they care about genealogy, which is, of course, not true. Um, but I think there's other stuff going on in the 18th century with the way people think about lineage, not just the Sharps. And I don't know what that is exactly, but that's what I'm I'm going to go, go looking find for, out. for William Dade and see what he has to tell us. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Of course, the book we've been discussing to remind listeners, if you want to go read the whole thing and look it up, is titled Being Single in Georgian England, Families, Households and the Unmarried, published by Oxford University Press. Amy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you.